Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. You know, before the show began, Frank and I were getting acquainted, talking about our respective childhoods. And I don't think we should share this on the air because it sounds like he was near as wacky as I am. Uh, agreed, yeah. I- right, right. Now, of course, once again, David is taking a hiatus from the show. Frank Warren is our guest co-host this week. And we'll be talking with the probably most famous conspiracy theory expert on the planet. Jim Mars, our upcoming guest. They're throwing around Czar so much, we're hearing it lately. I think Jim Mars, we should just appoint him as the conspiracy Czar. I think that fits him well. You know what's interesting about this, Frank, is that they criticize Obama for all the Czars. And it turned out that George Bush had more Czars than... Obama. It seems as if they criticize Obama for just about everything. So <laughs> I think it's breathing is yeah. where the problem yeah, lies. Getting, that, now we're getting, getting into politics. Bed. We might do some of that with Jim Mars. You had run a story on your site. Was that where we found out about David Andrew? Yes. Yes. Okay. How did you encounter this person? Because if you heard the interview, I wasn't nuts about his story. If you wouldn't mind, and I'd like to give some attention to that, but I'd like to just throw two cents in concerning David Biedney, not Andrew, which seems to be the white elephant in the room, if you don't mind. Uh, in perusing the forum, David's absence is gaining a lot of traction. There's a lot of conversation going on. Me being the first guest host in what I hope is his very short sabbatical, I just thought I'd, I'd like to put my two cents in. Uh, in fact, I was going to post this, but I ju- I'll just as soon uh, say it on the air to our listeners and and forum members, I don't think David Biedney, as your co-host and uh, you two giving birth to the Paracast, can be replaced. There will not be a replacement for David Biedney in my eyes, and it certainly not be would be by me. I think there's a little confusion out there. Some of the verbiage is, well, who, who will replace David? Hopefully, again, this is a short sabbatical. I just don't think he can be replaced. I think somebody can be another co-host, but you're not going to replace David Biedney. Uh, you guys are like hand and glove, in my view, and, and as I've told you off the air, it's a perfect match, and there just won't be a replacement, quite frankly. David does a really good job. Uh, you two, as a team, are perfect. The airwave the internet, the podcast fear needs both of you as a team. And David, I hope you're listening to this. You really need to be here. And again, my final word, there, there is no replacement. There will be uh, future guest hosts, but no replacement. Well, you That's know, we can also have, as they say, instead of a replacement, a successor or a temporary successor. That's, because I that's think that's I the point say. here now is part of the poll. There is a poll in the Paracast forums. If you go to forum.theparacast.com, there is a poll where our various members entered a number of names, including Frank and some other people that you know from the show. And the question is, who should co-host the Paracast with Gene? 
but it's not the intention of saying who should replace David Bietney. That's never part of the discussion. Good. Yeah, and there is no replacement. It's going to be interesting. But anyway, let's move on. Okay, so we got David Andrew. You became acquainted with him because he wrote an article for your publication, but also what feeling that you have with regard to his claims? As I said, I wasn't nuts about it. Well, I wasn't either. And let me clarify my comments first. I consider David, I don't know David real well, but I do consider him a friend. He's a friend of the UFO Chronicles. I have been on his wife's show, Eye to the Sky, DeAndrews, a few times. And I consider her to be a friend. She's also a friend of the UFO Chronicles. Setting that aside for a moment and just being an objective listener and a researcher, I thought he he shot himself in the foot a little bit, and perhaps a lot a bit. And David, if you're listening, I, I don't mean any offense by this, but it started out, he contradicted himself a couple times in there. Now, I don't know if he was trying to hold back information and he was uncomfortable about talking about certain things. It, it seemed that way. As the interview moved on, my skepticism Rose. Uh, he, he started with a few inc- incidents early on, and as time went by in the interview, that changed. And again, perhaps uh, that was because he didn't want to share certain details. As a researcher, and as you and I were talking off the air, it's one thing in regards to ufology. There, there's a set of standards in, uh, in regards to research for U- uh, UFOs in general, but when you get into the abduction phenomena, the rules change. It gets murkier, if I can use that term. You know, what we're dealing with 90% of the time are anecdotes. So as a researcher, you you want to get uh, some cooperation to those a- anecdotes. If it's an abduction situation, was there anybody else in the house? Is there physical evidence? Was there any disturbances? Were there any eyewitnesses to any uh, any disturbances in the house or entities? Did anybody else see anything? Oftentimes, there are UFO sightings connected to abduction experiences. You know, certainly all those things are good, and that's what I was looking for uh, in David's uh, interview. One thing that I did find interesting, and he didn't go into a lot of detail about, were his family members, and he explained why he didn't want to do that, and that was okay with me. But he had mentioned that other family members were having these experiences. Now, as a researcher, that gets my attention, and I you know, certainly want to know more about that. I got a hold of him shortly after the interview, uh, which was recorded a few weeks ago, and he had mentioned to me he... He didn't feel that it was one of his best interviews, and I have to agree with that. Also, at the end of the day, uh, both of you asked more than once, you know, could these be dreams? And and he said it's certainly possible. So I think he's he's staying open-minded to that, but obviously having he's mentioned that he's been doing the research for several years now he's come on the show he's done interviews he mentioned uh, that he was in the process although he's paused about writing a book he certainly takes this thing seriously and obviously he thinks it's more than just dreams but i i couldn't felt i I walked away from the interview being very skeptical well i think that kind of sums it up with me too i was looking for some kind of x-factor Something in the case that he was talking about in each particular instance of his dreams, his encounters, shall we say, with alien beings, he was sleeping, he was getting up from sleep. It always seemed to be pretty much the same thing. The only incident that seemed to be very peculiar is where they had that flying belt. He was outfitted with this belt that caused him to levitate or fly, and then he tells us that his father and his brother had the same experience. 
that was unique, I thought. And sadly, when you recounted the old show from the 50s, I was one of the ones that knew what you were talking about. <laughs> what I was talking about, ladies and gentlemen, was a serial from Republic called King of the Rocket Men. And they basically it was a leather suit with a helmet and a belt. And the belt was the control panel. It was, it was basically just a rocket suit. It was fitted with rockets. This day and age, the closest equivalent, of course, is that James Bond movie Thunderball, was it? Where he flew in a rocket suit, the opening scene? Yes. Yeah, I think okay. that was the- Anyway, they also, to be really, really get into trivia, they also made a series of movies featuring a character called Commando Cody in the Lost Planet Airmen. <laughs> And they used that rocket suit. They were able to take the same special effects, the flying scenes, which were basically patterned after what Republic did for Captain Marvel in 1941. End of the story. No more of that. Then that was our listeners' trip down memory lane. <laughs> it makes us feel very old. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, I, you know, it was intriguing that there was some a commonality between the family members. The question uh, I had as the interview went on was, uh, how did he find out about that? Was, you know, how did they all become cognizant that they each had this experience? Um, and, and of course, the you know individual experiences uh, lend credence uh, to the phenomenon. He did mention his father's bona fides in the interview, which uh, which helped. Um, I'm, you know, he's uh, he's not the park uh, bum, you know, uh, X Y Z town USA. Um, so that lends tends to lend credence to the story. But again, we're dealing with you know with anecdotes, and uh, as a researcher, you try to find something more. And uh, and this is not to say that David Andrews' experiences aren't real. I just think it, it bears out further research, and I don't. And I just got the feeling that he was holding things back, and I haven't spoken to him about this privately yet. Uh, but I'd like to, and uh, and I thought, it, you know, and he didn't. He, it, as he pointed out, he wasn't trying to sell something. You know, he's not there trying to jam this down everybody's throat. He's putting it out there, and uh, he want. Uh, well, in regards to the interview, he you know let the listener make up their own mind. And I appreciated that part of it, but uh, I I was a little, I had my skeptical hackles up, so to speak. Indeed, evidently did. Well, too bad, unfortunately, the story didn't end up being maybe as credible as we hoped it would be. But there you go. Maybe you'll have more information. Maybe there will be a reason to bring David Andrew back on the show to further explain what happened to him. And, And give a little better presentation, certainly. You know, we all do bad interviews. We do bad shows. Maybe that was it. Maybe he was just nervous. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. Let's see what our listeners think as we look at the comments from the Paracast forums. Again, at forum.theparacast.com. We have the conspiracy theories are himself, Jim Morris, coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. As you know, the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of the Paracast, Audio is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One book to consider, for example, is Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up by Timothy Good. Timothy Good, as you know, has been a guest on the Paracast. For this book or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's Audible. Podcast.com slash Paracast. 
We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Jim Mars, before you came on the Paracast... Frank and I refer to you as the conspiracy theory czar. Now, do you feel pleased with that or insulted? Well, you have to understand that the word conspiracy comes from the Latin conspiri, which simply means to breathe together or to, breathe, to act in concert. And uh, all conspiracies are not bad. If you uh, plan a surprise birthday party for your boss, that's a conspiracy. That's not a bad conspiracy. In fact, uh, my motto is, if it's not an act of God, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> because, yes, accidents happen, planes crash, ships sink. But if it's not just an act of God accident, then somebody planned it that way. Well, you know, the thing is about all this is the fact that isn't any two people getting together and deciding a plan of action, a conspiracy of some sort? Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Uh, the problem is is that the corporate mass media uh, over the past several decades have uh, put a very negative connotation on the word conspiracy. And uh, it's like uh, every conspiracy must be bad. And, uh, of course, that it's been rehabilitated somewhat since 9-11, which is kind of ironic. Uh, one of the few good things come out of 9-11 is you can actually talk about conspiracy now and and uh, everybody doesn't just run out of the room and say you're a nut. And let me add this, too, because usually it's not just conspiracy. Uh, I've been accused of being a conspiracy theorist, okay? Now, my response is, if you can prove something, it's not a theory, right? Well, that's the point. We're going to see what is there that we can prove. But before we even get into that, you started out in the working world pretty much as a mainstream news reporter. Correct. But somewhere along the line, you know, you said, I'm going to be a freelance writer and I'm going to concentrate on conspiracies. How and why did this happen? Well, number one, I still consider myself a down-the-line journalist, okay? I'm still a member of the Society of Professional Journalists, which I have been since the 60s. I'm a member of the Investigative Editors and Reporters. And uh, the only reason that I deal with what uh, a lot of people would consider conspiracies, and in some cases they are conspiracies, is because the corporate mainstream media 
uh, have been bought up, consolidated to the point to where they just don't want to deal with conspiracies. So as a dedicated and committed journalist, I've just kind of been left with the, the news that the news won't report. Okay, that brings us to one point before Frank asks his question. There is a theory also voiced by some members of the television media, cable TV, that the media is oriented towards the liberal political persuasion. I maintain that's a corporate media, not necessarily liberal or conservative. Yes, exactly. You're right on top of it. Let me put it this way. The so-called liberal media is only as liberal as their conservative corporate bosses allow them to be. And what I mean by that is, is that, yes, you see a lot of liberal issues tossed around in the mainstream mass media such as oh they'll they'll go back and forth on abortion or same-sex marriage or you know yada 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 but uh, when do you see stories that go in-depth about corporate malfeasance very seldom and well, the thing I worry about also is that we're really just dealing with fringe issues my employment situation right. or my financial situation does not depend on gays in the military. It does not depend on whether we allow abortions or not. And I understand people are allowed to have their opinions and we should respect their opinions. Right. But these are all fringe issues that have nothing to do with anything. Exactly. And furthermore, let me, uh, uh, let me compare the controversy, perceived controversy, say over the JFK assassination as compared to the controversy over abortion. Okay? The JFK assassination controversy is not truly a controversy. It only appears to be a controversy because of the wide gulf uh, between the official story, which a lot of people still just accept on blind faith, as opposed to those who've actually studied the case. Now, abortion is a true controversy in that there are equal numbers of thoughtful, caring, educated people on both sides who simply cannot agree on what the facts mean and uh, what the interpretation should be. Now, right then, though, that shouldn't be any problem. You know, in a free society, uh, no one should be forced to have an abortion. No one should be forced not to have an abortion. It should be a privately held matter between the patient and, and their doctor, okay, and their family. Uh, it's called freedom. Oh, what a concept. All right, let's actually look at the various conspiracy theories and see where they basically have traction. Obviously, the classic one is the JFK assassination. And I should tell you, I got started being interested in that back in the late 1960s when I would attend lectures by a former New York State Assemblyman by the name of Mark Lane, who wrote a book called Rush to Judgment. Mm -hmm. Now, he was the guy who pointed out the rifle couldn't possibly have killed Kennedy or fired that many shots as quickly and as accurately, all that stuff. But just basically looking from A to Z or whatever, what are the key issues that make one skeptical of Lee Harvey Oswald being the assassin? Well, there's a number. First off, and I was on to this very early on, in fact, that weekend, because they were interviewing witnesses in Didi Plaza, and since then, I myself have interviewed perhaps as many as 100 people who were in Didi Plaza, and that's including the former House Speaker, Jim Wright, who was riding in the motorcade just a few cars behind 
the Kennedy limousine, and they all said there was one shot, a pause, two shots, like bang, bang, right on top of each other. Now, back then even, having grown up in Texas and been deer hunting and was quite familiar with bolt-action rifles, I knew right then you do not get a bang-bang with a bolt-action rifle. And sure enough, right in the Warren report, the FBI testified that it takes two seconds just to cock the bolt and pull the trigger on a bolt-action rifle. So the best you get with a bolt-action rifle is bang, bang, bang. That's it. Okay, so right there, there's just prime face evidence that one person with a bolt-action rifle didn't do the shooting. All right, the other thing is uh, Oswald was recorded as telling the authorities, no, sir, I didn't shoot anyone. I'm just a patsy, which is extremely interesting because he didn't say I'm innocent. I didn't do it. He said, I'm a patsy, which implies that he was set up to take the blame. And yet, the Warren Commission, the House Lake Committee on Assassinations, none of the subsequent official investigations even considered, well, could he have been set up? And yes, he could have. There's an abundance of evidence, not the least of which is the fact that Oswald was seen and by several different people on several different times and places uh, at the same time. We Jim, can't be in Jim, two places at the same time. Didn't the uh, Congressional Committee in 74 come to the conclusion that it was, in fact, a conspiracy? That's true. In fact, most people, thanks to the corporate mass media, failed to remember or to know that the last official version of the Kennedy assassination by the United States government was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and they concluded, based on two separate sets of acoustical scientific information, that there was at least two shooters, one from the grassy knoll, and that there was probably a conspiracy then to kill Kennedy. They said we're out of time and money, and, and when they asked and urged the Justice Department to continue their investigation into this conspiracy, but, of course, that never happened. In fact, all the Justice Department did was convene a hand-picked panel of people for the, from the National Academy of Sciences to try to call their acoustical studies into question, and that made big headlines, and there's people today who think, well, yeah, they had this uh, acoustical evidence, but that's been called into question. What was never given proper media play was a few years later when a peer-reviewed paper, scientific paper in England, called the National Academy of Sciences panel into question, saying that their methodology was flawed, and of course you never get to hear that. So again, it's just more controversy, and in fact, let me just say that the cover-up in the Kennedy assassination has never been in the form of a proper cover-up in that the facts and the truth were not known. The cover-up has been in the form of obfuscation. They have confused the issue. They bring one hired expert to counter another hired expert. They've got one person who's given all kinds of publicity on some book that turns out to be totally flawed, and it just creates controversy until the average person goes, man, I just want to hear about this anymore. It makes my brain hurt. You know what, before we hurt our brains, though, let's look at what we know, if anything, about this sort of conspiracy. So maybe you can tell us, what do we know? And by the way, was Fred Lee Chrisman, one of the figures in the Maury Island UFO case, one of those hobos on no. Newton Plaza? Uh, no, he was not. Not my Yeah, I don't believe so. No. But i tell you, one of the, ta the tallest tramp, I do believe and feel pretty convinced of, was Charles Harrelson. 
a convicted Texas hitman. And uh, the father, by the way, of Woody Harrelson, the, the actor. Mm. And, and How do you uh, come to believe this? What leads you to that conclusion? <laughs> well, because, number one, when he was arrested out in Van Horn, Texas, he was high on drugs. <laughs> Sounds like an Aggie story, but he held a pistol to his head, his own head, and said, you know, don't move or I'll shoot. And he, <laughs> he, he kept the law enforcement guys uh, at bay for uh, several hours, as I recall. And during that time, he was ranting and raving, and he said, uh, he said, I'll clear up the Judge Wood murder, which is what he finally was convicted of. And he said, and I'll also clear up the Kennedy assassination. While Harrelson was in jail in Dallas, he told a Dallas news reporter, he said, they're bugging my cell. I can't really talk right now. He said, but if I get out of here, I'll give you the biggest story you've ever had. And he said, I won't say what it is, but it, it concerns November the 22nd, 1963. So in my mind, he virtually confessed to having a role in the assassination. Plus, the photo analysis of the tall tramp based on... Uh, wait, wait, wait. He confessed to his involvement? I say, I think he virtually confessed because okay. he... He said he would clear up the Kennedy assassination when he was arrested and then later told the Dallas News reporter, he said, I get, when I get out of here, I'll give you the biggest story you ever had in November 22nd, 1963. Sounds pretty close to a confession to me that he at least played some role in that. And then, well, at least you might be saying that just to get out of prison earlier or get a story. Yeah, that's true. But then there's also the photo analysis of the tall tramp and based on very distinctive ear and a wrinkle around his neck and hairline and facial features and everything else, I'm convinced it was Charles Harrelson. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual. A PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial hi this is Bud Hopkins and you're listening to the Powercast with Gene Steinberg David Jedney and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program it's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk Okay, we have Jim Mars, and we're talking conspiracies. He is the czar of conspiracy theories. He's been given that title. We're going to send him the plaque, by the way, and he's going to reject it. Okay, so if Charles Harrelson was the killer, where did Oswald fit in? Uh, exactly where he said he was. He says, uh, I didn't shoot anyone. I'm just a patsy. And by the way, that statement was recorded on sound and film. And in later years, as the technology became available, it was subjected to voice stress analysis, which showed there was no stress in his voice, which means he was telling the truth. And by the way, uh, another piece of evidence that's strong to me shows he was innocent is that when the Dallas police interrogated him before he was killed in the basement of the Dallas police station. They asked him where he was at the time of the shooting. He said he had been in the downstairs lunchroom. And they asked him if there had been anybody else in there with him. And he said, yeah, there was these two colored boys. 
and that worked at the depository. He said one of them's short. I think his name's Junior, and the other one I don't know his name, but he's kind of tall and lanky. Well, uh, Junior Jarman and Bonnie Ray Williams had indeed were black employees of the Texas School Book Depository and had indeed been eating their lunch in the downstairs lunchroom. Now, my question would be, how could Oswald have possibly known that, and how could he have accurately described them unless he had been there to see them? Did they see him? Possibly, but you have to understand the tenure of the times. A black man in Dallas in 1963, which was still having the white and colored restrooms and the white and colored drinking fountains, did not tell law enforcement anything other than what they wanted to hear. And yet it's interesting, so of course they never asked them, was he in there? And they never pressed that, because that was not the agenda. But it's interesting that during his testimony, I believe it was uh, Junior Jarman, when they mentioned that they had found Oswald's jacket and clipboard in the downstairs lunchroom, he blurted out and said, oh yeah, over there where he's eating lunch. Well, how would he have known that unless he'd been there to see him down there eating lunch? Well, I think the uh, it comes back to the Carcano rifle and, and the bolt-action Carcano rifle. Let's take the president out of it for a moment. You, you have a moving, not a static target, but yet you have a moving target out that window. I, I, I don't recall the distance. but I know, downhill and laterally away from you with a tree intervening in the line of sight. You can't make that shot if it's just a dummy going down there in the time frame alleged, much less an assassination of the President of the United States. It's impossible. And let me add to that, then, in the Marines, when Oswald went to the Marines at the, the first time in uh, October 1956, when they put him on the firing range, he could not qualify. In other words, he couldn't even hit the target. Finally, in 1959, it was getting out of the Marines. Maybe maybe it had a little practice, or maybe they got somebody to shoot for him. But he finally qualified as marksman, but by only one point. And marksman is the lowest of the three categories. It's marksman, sharpshooter, expert. And he barely made marksman by one point. So in other words, according to his marine records, he was a lousy shot. Okay, so we have Lee Harvey Oswald in the Texas School Book Depository. We have one of the hobos, Charles Harrelson, one of the hobos who may have been the guy who pulled the trigger. Okay, so if Lee Harvey Oswald was the patsy, what role did he play? <laughs> the patsy. <laughs> he was the guy. No, now, I'm saying uh, here that he well, just... Well, I know, I hear you. Let me, let me explain. Sure. I, do, I think Oswald, in some way, was mixed up in an assassination cabal or a plot, okay? But I have every reason to believe, probably we don't have enough time to even go into it, but let me give you one one little minor thing. And talking to his mother, Marguerite, she one time told me about a time when Lee was in junior high school and he showed up after school at his home with a military officer. And the military officer was telling Mrs. Oswald, well, your son's sharp. He's really a bright lad. He's a self-starter, self-motivator. He's the very kind of guy we need. Okay, so I think that the military and or intelligence were aware of Oswald and had basically cultivated him since in junior high school. And I think that by the time he got into the Marines, there are some very strange periods of time when he was missing from training, when there was no explanation of where he was or what he was doing. 
and according to others who were with him at that time, they too were recruited into the CIA. And I think Oswald was recruited as a low-level agent. I think that's what his assignment, first big assignment, was to go to Russia for whatever purposes and then uh, come back. And I think that he was picked up as the perfect patsy because every, the intelligence agencies, the military, the anti-Castro Cubans, everybody concerned had to run for cover, denounce him, act like they never knew him. What a perfect patsy for the assassination. Okay, you know, so you I, want to blame this guy, but then who did it? Okay, <laughs> who did it? Well, let's see. Probably easier to say who didn't do it, but okay, let me put it this way. He, Kennedy was killed in a military-style ambush, triangulation of fire by very, very competent professionals, uh, and then the whole thing was just, as I've said, obfuscated and the trail was covered by all kinds of misdirection, and they kept everyone off balance for years because once you discard the foreign elements like Castro did it, Khrushchev did it, and there's absolutely no evidence to point to that, then you're left with what people have argued about for the last 47 years. Was it the CIA? Was it the FBI? Was it the military? Was it the anti-Castro Cubans? Was it the mafia? And the answer is yes. All the above, because they were all involved in Operation Mongoose, the secret war against Castro, operated by the CIA, to include assassination. So all they did was send their hit teams to Dallas, because in their mind, there was more of a danger in Washington from Kennedy than there was from Castro. Jim, wasn't it in Dealey Plaza that day, wasn't it like old home club uh, with all the (laughs) players that were there? Yes. Exactly. Uh, there was even an Army intelligence agent who, who was taking pictures of the front of the school book depository before the shooting and then made the mistake of going inside and had to show his credentials to get out. And uh, that's how he became part of the official record. And, of course, you would have to wonder, what's an Army intelligence agent taking pictures of the front of the school book depository prior to the assassination? And, yeah, you're right. From what I understand, there were elements of the mafia, elements of the Mossad, probably KGB agents. There's probably all kinds of intelligence people crawling around Davy Plaza because many, many people knew what was going to happen. I've been told, in fact, there's a confession. Are you familiar with the, the video of the confession of an assassin? Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, James Files? Yeah. Yeah, what yeah, do you think? No, of that? I, hey, I've been to Joliet and sat down and interviewed James Files. Really? Yes. Well, that's that's <laughs> another show. Yeah. And I got to tell you this though, I was really looking forward to that because I had seen his confession, and uh, it made a lot of sense. It fit with a lot of things that I knew, but I really was not convinced that he's the guy. So I always thought, you know, based on my well-honed journalistic intuition, if I could just sit in front of the guy and look in his eyes, I think I'd be able to tell whether it's really the truth or not. But i got to tell you guys, I sat right there, we talked, I listened to everything he had to say, and I am still undecided. <laughs> Hmm. Because what, what do you think about the Remington Fireball as the weapon? There was such a weapon, and uh, I definitely think that that is, as described by Files, a two twenty two with a hollowed out tip and and uh, with explosive in there. Uh, which, uh, 
which certainly fits, doesn't it? Right, it certainly fits, and it fits with the explosive nature uh, of the headshot. Of the headshot, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and, oh, and I'll say this. I don't think Files is totally lying about everything. Files knows a lot, but then he was definitely part of that Chicago mob, and, in fact, particularly was the driver and right-hand man to Charles Nicoletti, the premier hitman for the Chicago mob, and I think he knows what he's talking about. The only thing I'm still undecided on is, was he truly the guy that pulled the trigger, or is he just, like you said earlier, trying to get out of jail by telling some of the intimate details that he learned from others in the mob? Well, okay. and adding to the chaff uh, of, yes. of everything that's already out there, yeah. A lot of noise. Yeah, a lot of noise. Keep it confused, and that way nothing ever gets decided. But here, guys, here's the Kennedy assassination in a nutshell. Once you study the case, and once you study just just a cursory examination of all the information that is now available, it becomes quite clear that it was not one person involved in the assassination. So once you set Oswald aside, then you come to understand what the House committee concluded, which is it was a conspiracy. Now, whether it was Oswald and one friend or, or a huge high-level conspiracy, nevertheless, it was a conspiracy. All right? Now, you got to understand that that conspiracy is still not known. Why? Because it's been covered up and obscured at the highest levels of the federal government of the United States. Lyndon Johnson, Jagger Hoover took steps to block any meaningful investigation and to block the truth. That's what turned what was, in 1963, another Texas homicide into a national coup d'etat. And if you want to know who's guilty, then I'm going to give you the names, all right? And the names are Lyndon B. Johnson and his next-door neighbor and buddy, J. Edgar Hoover, who was head of the FBI at that time. Now, can I prove that Johnson and Hoover ordered or even orchestrated the assassination? No, I cannot. But what I can prove beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt is that both those men took steps to obscure the truth of the assassination, and that makes them, under our legal system, accessories after the fact. And I don't know, I know in Texas, we've actually executed people who the facts of the case showed did not pull the trigger, but they knew what was going on. They did not turn in the killers. They helped the killers to escape, and they helped hide the truth of the killing, and they were executed as accessories after the fact, and Jagger Hoover and Lyndon Johnson are guilty in the assassination as being accessories after the fact. Okay, we can see where Lyndon Johnson certainly had a lot to gain from killing the president since he's next in line. Why J. Edgar Hoover? Why would he be involved? Well, because the Kennedys had made no real secret that they were going to fire Hoover. He was facing the end of his extraordinary long career as head of the FBI, which went all the way back into the 1920s. So he was about to lose his job as the premier law enforcement agent in the United States. And so, but Kennedy is killed. And in January of 1964, just just a month or so after the assassination, Lyndon Johnson had a special uh, ceremony in the Rose Garden and uh, exempted his buddy, Janger Hoover, from the mandatory federal re- requirement uh, age laws and installed him essentially then as FBI director for life. So he got to keep his job. So that explains how 
Bobby Kennedy was killed too, right? Right. Yeah, Bobby Kennedy was uh, actually he was rocking the boat in, in terms of Hoover. I mean, as uh, although Hoover's looking at them both jointly, but that they were butting heads. Well, yeah, and Robert Kennedy, see, for those who don't recall, he was, had been named Attorney General of the United States by his brother, President Kennedy. And one of the first things he did was put in a straight-line telephone to J. Edgar Hoover's office so that he could pick up the telephone and say, J. Edgar Hoover, here's what you're going to do, here's what you're not going to do. And Hoover chafed under that situation. And on Saturday morning, following the Friday assassination, the first thing that happened was they pulled a straight line out of Hoover's office. He didn't have to answer to Bobby Kennedy anymore. And let me mention that in California, just a few days before he himself was assassinated in 1968, Robert Kennedy was asked by some college kids, uh, you know, what, what could you do about the death of his brother? And he was quoted as saying to them, I cannot do anything about the death of my brother until I have the power of the presidency, which tells me that he understood what I now understand, which is you would have to have the power over the Pentagon, the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, before you could ever do anything meaningful about finding the truth in Kennedy assassination. So and logically, course, he had to be stopped. Yes, and I don't think it was just some coincidence that the very night that he had just won the Democratic nomination for the state of California, which pretty well cinched him for the Democratic nomination at the National Convention, he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And that assassination, too, is fraught with uh, inconsistencies, missing evidence, fabricated evidence. We see the same M.O. as the JFK assassination. Mm -hmm. Okay, one more thing about that, which is, are we ever going to know? Does any president since Johnson have any incentive or interest in dredging up this stuff? Well, uh, first off, I'm asking this question, <laughs> question all the time. Will we ever know the truth? about who killed Kennedy, and my standard response is, we know the truth right now, okay? You're not really asking the right question. What you're really asking is, will there ever come a day when there's a, a news conference, a national news conference, and somebody with authority in the government would stand up and say, okay, okay, here's what really happened to President Kennedy. No, that is not going to happen. But if you want to know what happened to Kennedy, just read the material, you know, just, you know, study the case, and then think of it, say, put yourself in the position of Sherlock Holmes, okay? Disregard the flaky stuff, stick with the facts, and you will know the truth of it. And will anybody come out right now? Think of all the talk that's swirling around now about how that Barack Hussein Obama is likely to be assassinated. They're already laying the groundwork, you know, so if it happens, nobody's going to be too shocked and amazed. So no, they at, the, at that level, they know if they try to go into the heart of the beast, if they try to come out publicly and talk about the unwarranted power of the military-industrial complex, as Dwight Eisenhower called it, and I would include the intelligence community, that, hey, they can get knocked off, too. Their plane can crash, okay? Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 
888-253-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Jim Mars, the conspiracy theory czar. We've so dubbed him, and he's accepted gracefully. Of course, he's going to enact some kind of conspiracy against us after the show is over. (laughs) That's well, what I think keep, is going to happen. Keep in mind that most everything I've been telling you all is not theory. It is a substantiated fact. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Frank and I were talking about a couple of movies that seem to mimic reality in a couple of senses. And maybe you could talk about this. The Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis, where you have a... It's basically a movie about this woman who's a CIA assassin who loses her memory in a car crash. And she breaks up a plot by apparently the CIA to stage a terrorist act and kill a lot of people because their funding had been cut. Then we have a movie called The Siege, where we, the CIA, was basically feeding these Afghanistan rebels back in the 1980s. We trained them, and then we abandoned them, and then they came back and became our worst enemy. And, of course, that leads you to think about people like Osama Osama bin Laden. Laden. Absolutely. And, uh, by the way, if you'll read my book, The Terror Conspiracy, uh, Deception, 9-11, and the Loss of Liberty, you'll find that in the 80s, Osama bin Laden was actually brought to the United States under the name Tim Osmond, met with security and intelligence officials, and was given training and money to go back and prosecute the war against the Russians in Afghanistan, the Mahajadeen. Now, you know, uh, there's no line, in fact, I've heard it repeated in several movies uh, along the lines of the ones you mentioned, that once in the CIA, always in the CIA. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, what's really going on. In fact, in my book, The Terror Conspiracy, I bring up the case of Abu Zabidah. Now, old Abu was arrested in Pakistan in the mid-2002, and uh, the White House press secretary at that time, Scott McClellan, said he was the highest-ranking al-Qaeda chief that they had caught to date, and by golly, they were going to make him talk. Well, they did, and there's a long story there, but it's interesting that they tortured him, they waterboarded him, but that didn't work. They finally tricked him, and that worked. And what they found out from him was that he was actually reporting back to three Saudi princes, and he named them and gave their private unlisted cell phone numbers, which checked out, and that he was operating through a cutout, an air marshal mirror of Pakistan. Within a couple of months of this information coming out, all three Saudi princes and the air marshal mirror were dead, okay, killed in car crashes and an airplane crash and blah, blah, blah. So that is an amazing piece of information right there because that means Al-Qaeda was actually being given its marching orders by people within Saudi Arabia. And then you have to stop and recall that the closest 
business and social friends to the Saudi royals was the Bush family. Okay, I see where you're going here, so let's just take it and see what evidence there is. You're saying that the Bushes, the CIA, whatever, was responsible for 9-11 or knew about it, let it happen, and didn't stop it. I would like to, for you to explain to me any other explanation why that for about more than 100 times in the year up to 9-11 that there had been air alarms, somebody went off of, uh, went into uh forbidden uh, restricted airspace or got off their flight path and that uh, jet interceptors were launched within five or ten minutes. You might recall the case of the golfer Payne Stewart. They suffered an oxygen malfunction and his Learjet went off course and they had fighter interceptors all over him within about 10 to 15 minutes, and yet on the morning of 9-11, after operating perfectly for more than a year up to that point, the hijacked planes flew around for up to an hour and a half with no interceptors. Now, how is that possible? And they hit the Pentagon, one of the most heavily guarded buildings in the world. And furthermore, another thing that they will not and do not talk about is I know for certain that the Pentagon is guarded by automated anti-aircraft missile batteries, okay? And if you come close to the Pentagon and you're not sending out a transponder signal that's a friendly signal, that those things automatically activate and you're knocked down with a missile. So you tell me why that they were mute that morning. It's an inside job. For what purpose? Well, look what happened. They were able to activate their plans. And what were their plans? Well, let's go back a year to September of 2000 when the Project for New American Century, a neocon think tank that included Cheney and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and all of these guys, issued a position paper called uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses. And in there, they reiterated uh, Cheney's call for increased military forces in the middle East to gain control over their oil supplies, an invasion of Afghanistan, and a regime change in Iraq. And uh, however, the authors of this paper uh, were pretty prescient. They said, you know, this is going to be a hard sell to the American public unless there is a, quote, catalyzing catastrophic event like a new Pearl Harbor, end quote. A year later, they got just such an event. Hope and fear. That's that's how this yes. country's run, uh, or that's how things yeah. are done. Hope and fear. Exactly, and mostly fear. Okay, uh, you got to do what we say, or uh, you might lose your job, you might lose your pension, you might lose your vote, you know, and if it causes enough trouble, you might lose your life. Mm. It's all built on fear. In fact, think about this, guys. During the height of World War II, when we were faced with imminent invasion by the Japanese military and that we were really facing one of the most powerful uh, militaries in the world, uh, the Nazi, the, uh, the German Wehrmacht, our president, Franklin Roosevelt, talked to the nation. And what did he say? Be fearful. We're jacking up the alarm, enemy alarm. No. He said we, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Let's all band together as Americans, young, old, white, red, black, Baptist, Jewish, Christian, you know, who knows. Let's all be Americans and let's dig in and let's get this job and let's save democracy of the world. And we did, okay? And now look after 9-11. All we got was, well, be afraid, be very afraid, terrorist alarm up to hey, orange today, you know. Oh, but go shopping. Yeah, keep shopping. <laughs> Okay, so this is something that the CIA sponsors, but before we even get to the obvious consequences, why is Jim Mars still alive? Oh, because I'm just a conspiracy theorist. 
you know, they can't attack my information, so they just attack me. But there's, it's, I'm kind of hard to attack, really, because I'm just an honest tax-paying church member, <laughs> member of the public that, you know, I, I don't have a mental history record, I don't have a criminal record, I mean, you know, they, so they, it's kind of hard, and they certainly can't attack my information because I double-check my sources, I double-check my information. When I tell you something, it's generally you can take it to the bank. So about all it can do is uh, give me benign neglect. You know, you notice I'm not on uh, <laughs> Good Morning America. <laughs> you notice I'm not on uh, any of those national talk shows you don't see me on Glenn Beck or anybody, any of the big ones oh that would be interesting to have you and Glenn Beck together oh it would because I, I got a few choice questions I'd like to ask of Glenn Beck take, well you know what I'll tell you what you. I'll tell you what since you raised that before we go on what choice questions lay a few on me that you would like to ask Glenn Beck <laughs> well, first off, I'd like to ask him why did he got all head up and said, I have found the evidence that the FEMA is building these concentration camps all across the country, and tomorrow I'm going to provide you with the evidence. And then the next day he backs off and says, oh, well, no, 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 there's really nothing to all that. I would like to know who told him what, okay? Somebody put fear into him. And now I'd also like to ask him why recently the poor guy down in Austin flew his plane in the IRS building, uh, Glenn Beck was on there trying to equate violent actions like that with the Tea Partiers and the Tenth Amendment people and the Patriot Movement. And I'm just wondering, you know, I'd like to know who, how does he justify that? Because there's never been anybody truly connected to the Patriot Movement that has ever you know, committed a violent act. It's always somebody on the other side or somebody connected with the government. Okay, so having done all this, what does the government gain? Do they gain oil riches from Iraq? What? Well, the whole raft of things, you know. We're now militarily occupying Haiti, which uh, they just discovered a few years ago prior to the earthquake that they had some untapped huge oil reserves down there. So now we got control over that. And uh, all we had to do was saying that we were on a humanitarian mission, although we didn't really send food and water, we sent a carrier group with armed soldiers. And then we, of course, we're occupying Iraq, you know, with its oil reserves, and we're trying to occupy Afghanistan so we can secure the uh, gas pipeline for Unicol that goes through there, as well as put the poppy fields back into production. The Taliban, who I don't have really anything much to say good about, were nevertheless religious fanatics in uh, in two by 2001, they had eradicated about 90% of the poppy crop. Well, that puts a big dent in the world heroin trade. And so we invade, since we're supposedly fighting a war on drugs, did we knock out the other 10% and knock out the heroin trade? No. We put all the fields back into cultivation, and now there's more poppies uh, under cultivation than there were, uh, you know, long before the Taliban came along. People have to stop and, and think for themselves. They can't just listen to the corporate control mass media. And they have to understand what's going on. The defense budget is higher than it's ever been, much higher than it was in the middle of World War II when we were really fighting a world war. 
it's amazing, you know. In fact, taking into account not only the defense budget, but all ancillary matters like all the contracts going to contractors, the private contractors that are now fighting our wars for us, and you throw in military retirement, all like that, the military is sucking down a, a more than 50% of our gross national product. It's, uh, it's amazing, but nobody really gets told that, so nobody thinks about that. Okay, so supposedly when they cut back on a few weapon systems because they're wasteful, that's just window dressing? That's window dressing because they've got stuff in the wings that you and I can hardly even imagine. Let me tell you something. Back in the 70s, I was writing articles about weather war, okay? They were developing technologies to create and to alter the weather patterns, and that was in the 70s. So you can imagine what they're capable of today. How do you know that? That's the obvious question. Okay, because it's there in the scientific papers, and it's there in the defense journals. In fact, I've got an article from U.S. News and World Report, not exactly your most radical rag, where they're talking about how that they can mitigate hurricanes, okay? They can use space-based satellites in this harp array to uh, bombard hurricanes and possibly decrease their intensity and that they can also heat up the water going one side or the other and guide the hurricane away from, uh, you know, big cities and, and land masses where they don't want it to go. And that got out because that sounds like a very good and benign purpose for using this technology. But hey, guys, use your head. If they can de-intensify a hurricane, then they can bombard it and intensify it. And if they can guide it away from something, they can guide it into something. Well, okay, is that to explain Hurricane Katrina? It very well could be because I was kind of amazed that Katrina, which seemed like it was going to miss uh, New Orleans, and then all of a sudden cut it in a 90-degree turn, slammed right into it. I mean, the, the beauty of this is this is technology that exists but is largely unknown to the public, and it's beautiful, plausible deniability. Oh, that's a hurricane, man. That's God's work. We, we don't have anything to do with that. And yet, I can point you to the scientific papers and to the articles that they've been working on this stuff for years, and they've got it down. And that's the same thing on 9-11. If you use technology such as Global Hawk, which was largely unknown to the public at that time, Global Hawk is where they can electronically capture the onboard computer of a high-flying aircraft and can control it from the ground or from another aircraft. They can remote control it and send it anywhere that they want it to go. Now, now we know about this because now I'm even seeing ads for the Air Force and Marines saying, hey, come join the Air Force and you can, you know, and show these guys playing like video games at the control somewhere and they're, and they're sending those Global Hawk unmanned vehicles into Afghanistan, into Iraq. They led our attack, but on 9-11, nobody really knew about that technology. And so you could see where that technology could be used, and then you could put out any cover story you wanted to, and nobody could successfully re rebut you because they don't know the technology exists. Oh, this is getting pretty crazy. This is getting pretty crazy. Before we well, get too crazy, crazy, but it is exist. Yeah, what I'm telling you is not theory. In fact, the head of British Airways in early 2001 said the day of hijacking is over with because now we can electronically capture the onboard computer of an airliner and we can guide it to a safe landing regardless of what the hijackers or the flight crew wants to do. Again, this this is not theory. 
these are facts. It's just not known to most people. I believe that you've mentioned in the past in regards to the Twin Towers, uh, one of the other buildings that, that was untouched also came down. You know what? Before we even get into that, we're talking about Seven World Trade Center, I presume. Basically break for the hour. But before we do that, Jim, where can our listeners learn more about the things that you do? Well, first off, they can read my book, which are all offered on my website, jimmars.com. That's J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S.com. Or you can go to any bookstore or go on Amazon, type in Jim Mars. You'll find the whole listing of my books. If you're interested in Kennedy assassination, that would be Crossfire, the plot to kill Kennedy, which was a basis for the Oliver Stone movie, JFK. You can get start, go to Rule by Secrecy, which will give you the overview of the people within secret societies that can be traced all the way back to history. Then you can go to the terror conspiracy, which tells you what happens on 9-11 and puts it into a context. Then you can move on to the rise of the Fourth Reich, which shows you that uh, we beat the Germans in World War II, but we didn't beat the Nazis. We brought them over here, rolled them into our military industrial complex, and they've been slowly taken over ever since. And then uh, I've got a new book coming out later this year that I think we'll pick up from there. We'll get into that in a moment. We'll have more with Jim Mar- is on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. People have asked me, by the way, whether I'm going to do voices while David isn't here. And the answer is, mm, you never know. <laughs> you never know what I might do. Frank Warren is our guest co-host. We're talking to Jim Mars, the czar of conspiracy theorists. And we started about the so-called 9-11 conspiracy what about Seven World Trade Center? It wasn't shot down with a particle beam, was it? Well, I don't know. All I know is it wouldn't hit by aircraft, and it only had a few desultory fires in it, and yet at 525 on the afternoon of 9-11, it just collapsed into its own footprint, just straight down uh, near freefall speed, and barely damaging the Verizon building and the U.S. Post Office to either side of it, uh, and so let's go to the official 9-11 Commission report and see what the, how they explain the collapse of Building 7. Uh, oops, why they didn't even mention it. How's that for an investigation? Mm-hmm. They didn't even mention the collapse of this third building at the World Trade Center. <laughs> Boy, that's a real good investigation, wasn't it? <laughs> and later they come back and try to say, well, okay, we were still studying it. And, well, you know, they had some fires. And, there was, yeah, there was only a few fires, but all of those fires were all at very strategic points. And it just happened to melt the major girders. And, well, the thing just fell down, even though there has never been a major steel-reinforced building that's collapsed due to fire in history, including the Windsor Hotel in Spain, which burned out of control for more than two days, and yet it was totally gutted, but it was still standing. Same thing with the big fire in uh, Beijing, I think it was. 
or maybe it was in Japan. And so, same deal, burned totally out of control, but didn't collapse. Well, I'll uh, play devil's advocate on this one, Jim. What, what would be the motive uh, to get rid of that building? Well, first off, it housed the offices of the Security and Exchange Commission, who, again, this is not theory, this is what they admit to, lost thousands of prosecution documents on Enron and World.com. Oh, how convenient. And by the way, I, now this is not my theory, I'm not even sure it's a theory, but I will preface by saying I don't know this is absolute fact, but I have heard it also had old Security and Exchange Commission files in there to include the prosecution of Prescott Bush during World War II for being nothing but a financial front man for Hitler and the Nazis. He was prosecuted in November of 1942 by the federal government under the Trading with the Enemies Act and stripped of his holdings in Union Banking Corporation and the uh, Hamburg America Steamship Line and uh, fined millions of dollars and uh, because they said he was just uh, handling Nazi money. Hmm. And they say that those documents uh, uh, may have been in Building 7. May have been. We have no evidence of this, do we? No, I said before that was a rumor. But it's absolutely true that the Security Exchange Commission has said that they lost thousands of documents uh, pertaining to the scandals at uh, World.com and Enron and others. And, of course, let's not forget that in the day or two following 9-11, even the mainstream media was talking about the very suspicious put options that were made on United Airlines and American Airlines uh, that was going to make somebody a lot of money because put options are you're betting that the stock's going to go down, okay? And so it's usually when there's a big number of put options placed, that evinces foreknowledge of the events. And they said the FBI was going to check into that, and they were going to see if that didn't track back to Osama bin Laden. And then you never heard another word about it, did you? Hmm. You know why? Because it did not track back to Osama bin Laden. It tracked back to individuals connected to our Central Intelligence Agency. Okay, so we're saying here the Central Intelligence Agency was part of this plot. I didn't say they were part of the plot. I just said that uh, people connected to the CIA were behind the suspicious put options that showed they may have had foreknowledge of what was going to happen. And then the trail goes cold. Right. Well, the trail goes dead because they're told to quit following it. Hey, you know, it's kind of like uh, a guy told me one time he found a thirty out 6 shell casing on the roof of the Dallas County Records building overlooking Dealey Plaza about 10 years after the assassination and it was heavily weathered it obviously laid up there for a good long time and he told me he took it to the FBI and they said well since we know Lee Harvey Oswald used a 6.5 millimeter Manneker can- Cano obviously this has nothing to do with the assassination and they just came <laughs> on his bike now that's the way to conduct an investigation <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're never going to get the answer, are we? Nope, not as long as we look to uh, the very officialdom that probably was behind the event. Okay, so... Right now, right I, now... That's a question that, you know, that comes to my mind here. So as we have new presidents taking over, so Obama takes over, and he's promising change you can believe in. But a lot of the stuff he's doing from a military standpoint are just continuations of what Bush did. So did somebody come in there and sit him down and say, (laughs) Mr. President-elect, this is the way things are? (laughs) How's that change working out for you? 
<laughs> I, uh, I really haven't seen any change. I can nail it down for you, though. Let's go back to the uh, first Bush administration, 89-93, George Herbert Walker Bush. Every one of his cabinet members, with the exception of Dan Quayle and his buddy James Baker, were members of the Secret Society Council on Foreign Relations that has been running U.S. foreign policy since before World War II. But then we shifted and we went to the Democrats and we got the Clinton administration, 1993 to 2000. All cabinet members, with the exception of the Secretary of Defense, William Perry, were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. But that's all right, because then the George W. Bush administration went back, got some more Republicans. Oops, look at his cabinet. Dick Cheney, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, Rumsfeld, Robert Gates, Elaine Chao, Todd Whitman. Hey all members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Well, but then we get Obama with change we can believe in, okay? Oops, wait a minute. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Bilderbergs, Robert Gates, who's a holdover from the Bush administration, Council on Foreign Relations, Janet Napolitano, Bill Richardson, Susan Rice, James Jones, Timothy Geithner, Larry Summers, Paul Wagner. Oops, all members of the Council on Foreign Relations. So I ask you guys... What's changed? Nothing. The same financial oligarchy is running this country. Okay, so basically, it's really the domestic policy where things are different. Well, it's not even really different there, is there? Uh, you know, if Bush had approved some of those horrendous bailout packages to the very bankers that caused the problem in the first place, he probably would have been pilloried. But Obama does it, and everybody just kind of scratches their head and says, gee, I wonder why he's doing that. Yeah, but of course, and, Bush did approve the bailout. Yeah, the original bank bailout was approved in the last yeah, couple of months exactly. of his term. So in other words, Obama was just following along in his footsteps. Where's the change? There's no change. The same moneyed, wealthy elite that's been running this country for decades is still in charge. All they've done is change hand puppets. All right, so let's look at some of the other things that haven't changed. The UFO mystery is considered a classic conspiracy of one sort or another. We mentioned Franklin Crispin because he is, you know, a figure who was part of that Maury Island case, but right. is also apparently part, or was rumored to be part of the Kennedy assassination in some way. All as right, was so Guy Bannister, as was Guy Bannister, who, as an FBI agent, was. Uh, intimately involved in the Maury Island case and then turned up in New Orleans and was at the center of the Garrison uh, Clay Shaw trial down there and then died quite suddenly after his name kind of came into it. So now, isn't that fascinating that you've got these same guys with in intelligence and law enforcement connections that are involved in early UFO cases and then end up involved in the Kennedy assassination? What was that uh, famous line uh, in in the Stone movie? Uh, the uh, an enigma wrapped up in the. <laughs> Yeah, on and something like a mystery yeah. within an enigma yeah, wrapped yeah. up in a puzzle or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> There's well, too, many, uh, too many F words for me to keep up yeah. with it. Well, Jim, you know, it was, since we're shifting to the uh, UFO enigma, something that I learned in, in preparing for this interview, and I think most of our listeners probably were under the same assumption, I had always presumed that uh, you began this conspiratorial trek and, and then later UFOs, beginning with the JFK assassination, but it wasn't that way, was it? No, not really. In fact, uh, I can prove it, too. I can go back to 
1957, I believe, when there was a UFO incident in Leveland, Texas. And uh, as a young guy, I drew a watercolor uh, depicting that event based on the news accounts at that time. So that shows that I was aware, interested, paying attention as far back as 1957. And then after my book, uh, Alien Agenda, came out, I, I got a, a letter with a clipping in it from um, one of my classmates at the University of North Texas where I was the editorial page editor of the school newspaper back in, I think, I want to say 1965. And they sent me a copy of an editorial that I'd written about that time, 1965, talking about UFOs and how that we didn't know exactly what they were, but we should take them seriously and we should, there seemed to be a real issue there and that we needed to find out what was really going on. On. So obviously, I've been I've been paying attention to that for decades, long before I was publishing books. Okay, let's that, look at the UFO mystery in more detail here. What, Jim, are the great conspiracies in the UFO field? Is it what the government knows about it? Yeah, I think so. There's massive amounts of UFO information that the government is still keeping close to its chest. Uh, in fact, this is probably one of no, I would say it's the greatest conspiracy in history because if any of the UFO cases turn out to be extraterrestrial in nature, then we're talking about, you know, contact with non-human species, which, you know, just about makes every other event in history pale by comparison. And yet they're keeping this from us. Okay, you know but why? what do they know? Do they know that this appears to be extraterrestrial, if that's what it is, and we're not always 100% sure here on the PowerCast where the answers lie. But is it there, or would they rather not admit they know nothing? Well, it's a little bit of both. I think there are certain people within the government who know a lot more than uh, they're letting on. And I think they do know that there is a very non-human equation to the whole thing. But actually, it goes way back. And the reason I think I know that they know is that I've often thought, wouldn't it be great? Because, you know, today, anytime there's the UFO flap, as they used to call them, that they say, well, you know, it's just an unidentified test craft, you know, or some experiment or, you know, whatever. And so I've often thought, wouldn't it be great if they had a well-documented case of UFO activity prior to satellites and modern jets and test craft being in the air, and you know, there is. 1897, Aurora, Texas, okay, a silver cigar-shaped object crashed, has a tremendous explosion, and the Dallas Morning News, which is still in publication, carried a story. It said the pilot, whose remains were badly disfigured, but enough was recovered to show he was not an inhabitant of this world. You know what? There's one thing that worries me about that. A lot of people in the UFO field believe Aurora was a hoax. Mm-hmm. Okay. But answer me this. I, I, I wasn't I there. Some people think I was. I considered that quite seriously because that's entirely possible. At that time, there were no newspapers as we know them today where you have staffs of paid reporters. What they did was it was usually the local printer who would print the newspaper, and he was dependent on what they called correspondents or stringers, and that was people who lived in all the various outlying towns and 
villages and they would be designated as a stringer and then they would send a letter to the newspaper telling of all the happenings in that town and they would publish it in the newspaper and that's how they got their stories. So it's entirely possible that one of these stringers could have sent in a hoax story. But I <laughs> here's where I changed my mind on that. I finally got hold of the entire front page of the April 19th, 1897 Dallas Morning News. There are 16 stories on that front page, and, and they came from various locations from southern Oklahoma as far south as almost Austin, Texas, and every single one of them was talking about the silver cigar-shaped object flying through the skies of North Texas. This was six years before the Wright brothers flew. There was nothing man-made in the air. It's time to mend fences here on the Paracast, and we've had our differences with Bill Burns and UFO Magazine, but now, can't we just get along? What do you think, Bill? Hi, everybody. This is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine. I'm glad to be back with Gene Steinberg on the Paracast, and here's a special offer for all you Paracast fans. Normally, we sell five issues of the magazine for $19.99. Guess what? If you're a fan of the Paracast, a friend of Gene Steinberg's, you're my friend as well, it's six issues of UFO magazine for $19.99. Look forward to hearing from you. And Gene, thanks for having me back. So where do we get a hold of you, Bill? You can get a hold of me at www.ufomag.com. That's www.ufomag.com. I look forward to hearing from you. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Jim Mars. He's the czar of conspiracy theorists, and now he's going to take that phrase that I coined, and he's going to put it up on his website, and he's going to go away with it, and he's not going to give me a commission. Is that correct, sir? <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a box of chocolates. <laughs> hey, I'll take the chocolates. I'll take the chocolates. Maybe we'll save the chocolates for David. He liked chocolates when David <laughs> returns. Okay, all right. So that, you feel that basically... It's not just one stringer reporting this. There were widespread reports of this particular craft. Yes. yes. The one I like is the one from Granbury, Texas, uh, which says, uh, about 9.30 o'clock last night, uh, while drilling the riddle rifles, whatever that was, Newt uh, Grisham, a warsome young man, being a populist, could not stand the sight of the air machine, so he ordered the company to open fire, and they did, and soon the whole town was aroused. Hey, that kind of answers the question about why don't they just land and say, hey, here we are, how are you? <laughs> and Billy Bob would be shooting at them. <laughs> well, in 1896 and 97, let's don't forget, went back to a flap. That was, Those were flap years. Yeah, there were incidents. It was a great airship uh, mystery. Exactly. And in yeah. fact, it, it started right here in Sacramento. That's uh, true. In November of 1896. And then but that went across the north. country and yeah, into Canada. 
They and into Canada and up around the Chicago area. And by early 1897, it was moving south down along the, uh, uh, the, the Great Plains and through the Midwest. And then here's what's interesting, though. After the report of the crash in Aurora and on April 17, 1897, all those reports stopped. <laughs> Did it crash? I think so, and I'll tell you why. Because two summers ago, uh, the... Uh, History Channel, I think it was, a scientific team to Aurora, and they debunked the debunkers. The debunkers said it was all a hoax, it never happened, and therefore there was never a grave in the cemetery. They found, when I showed them exactly where the spot where the little grave was, it was a short grave as of a child or a very short person, they used ground penetrating radar and they found out that indeed there was a grave there. Then they went to the site where the crash occurred. And, for for uh, our listeners, Jim, that was an episode of UFO Hunters, one of their better ones, I might Okay, well, that's where people kind yeah. of groan. That's why I was going to ask. But the question well, is here, grown, before we go on, up. before we go on, the question I would have to ask then is, okay, what was buried? Did they try to dig it up? No, they can't because uh, back in the early 70s when I first got involved in that story, I, writing for the Forest Star Telegram, and Bill Case, who was the aviation writer for the Dallas Times-Herald at the time, both ran stories saying that very thing. Well, why don't they zoom the grave? And then we know for sure. And uh, that prompted the Cemetery Association to hire a lawyer who threatened an injunction against anyone who'd go in there and try to dig up a grave. So officially, that's never happened. Although, I'll tell you this little story. Prior to the stories that came out in the spring of 1973, I believe it was, Bill Case called me and said, come up to Aurora. I met him up there. He had a metal detector. We ran it over the little grave, and we found three very positive readings, one up near the headstone, which was still in existence at that time, and two towards the center of the grave. And I remember that distinctly because I was kidding with Bill and said, yeah, it's probably his tricorder, (laughs) the thing they use on Star Trek. (laughs) And uh, then, after the, the little flap came up, and there was some publicity, and there were people driving around, driving up there, sightseeing, and they actually put a police guard on the cemetery for about two weeks. And the very night that they pulled the police guard, the little headstone went missing and has not been seen since. And about a month after that, I got a call from Bill Case. He said, meet me at the Aurora Cemetery, which I did. And he got out his metal detector. We went over the grave, and all of the traces of metal in the grave were gone. And I said, whoa, what happened? Because it was quite obvious that the grave had not been disinterred. And, you know, the whole thing had not been emptied. And he said, look, we got our hands and knees, and there were little holes drilled, one up near where the headstone had been and two more toward the center of the grave. Somebody had gone in there with some very sophisticated equipment, located the metal, used a core sampler or something similar, and extracted that metal out of the grave. And I said to Bill, I said, do you think the UFO researchers did this? And he said, no, they're law-abiding people. They'd never do that. I said, well, who do you think did that? And he voiced the very same thought I had. He said, I think it was the government. Hmm. Now, here's the clincher on the Aurora story. When the UFO hunters did their special and had their scientific study of the crash site, they found blobs of molted aluminum, or what appeared to be aluminum. It, It was a type of aluminum, but it was not comparable in metallic makeup to the current modern aluminum. Little balls of uh, molten aluminum embedded in trees and in the rocks and as far as four and five inches into the ground. 
indicating there'd been a huge explosion at that area. So, and didn't they can, extract some something out of the well as well? They found some bits of metal, but I don't think any of that metal out of that well has ever been identified as anything other than something that could have been in common usage. But but the notion that it was embedded in the tree. Yes, uh, that indicates a tremendous explosion. And uh, I remember talking to Brawley Oates, who owned the property, had owned the property since 1940, and he said there had never been an explosion there then. So whatever caused this explosion occurred before 1940, probably went back to 1897. Now, let me tell you another interesting little tidbit. Uh, I'm sure you guys are aware of the great Los Angeles air raid of February 1942, where they expended thousands of rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition at what they said was a large glowing ball that just slowly moved across the city. One of uh, my pet cases. Yeah. Now, uh, the next day, as Stimson, the head of the War Department, said, oh, no, nothing happened there, folks. It was just war jitters, okay? And, of course, that was right as World War II was cranking up, and, of course, that story got quickly forgotten. But I have a document signed by George Marshall, who was chief of staff to uh, Franklin Roosevelt, in which they're discussing the recovery of unconventional aircraft uh, in the mountains of San Bernardino and also off the uh, coast by the U.S. Navy. And but what I found really interesting was uh, there's a paragraph at the bottom of this document that says, I have ordered a search of all War Department files uh, regarding any unconventional aircraft dating back to 1897, the very year of the Aurora spaceship crash. And I think that that indeed may have been one of the first official <laughs> UFO recoveries. All right. Because well, you wanted to talk about conspiracy. That puts Roosevelt in the know. That, that changes everything, quite frankly. Yeah. If in fact that's does. true. And I think that that's why that in the wake of the Roswell thing in July 1947, immediately plans were put in effect so that just two months later they were able to ram through the National Security Act of 1947, which we all know that that created the CIA and that it changed the name of the War Department through to the Defense Department and separated the Air Force from the Army. But what most people don't pay attention to, guys, is it also created the National Security Council. And, of course, by its very name, anything having to do with national security came under its purview. And that's where they bypassed Congress and the media and the public. Everything having to do with national security then went through the National Security Council. And, and that document, uh, the majority of that is still classified today. Right. Uh, and also at that time is when, according to the stories, they put together the, the first uh, Magic 12 or MJ-12. All right. Uh, now, I should tell you here that if we're getting into MJ-12, we have a lot of people who are credible on both sides of the issue of MJ-12. Some people saying I, that the documents, you know, the ones I'm talking about, those I, documents are real. Other people saying they're fake. So Stanton Friedman, I'm sure you know Stan. Stanton oh, yeah. Friedman says they're real. Kevin Randall who's a perfectly serious researcher, very high, highly qualified, says yeah. they're fake. I gather you go on the side of the believers? Hang on just one second. First off, we can't lump them all together. In Stan's defense, he has come out and, and stated that several, in his opinion, right. of the documents are bogus. You can't, yeah, yeah. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, well, exactly. I'm just even going to the point of saying, are there any real ones? Even assuming are, one is and, uh, real, yeah. 
there's a problem, there is obviously something that happened that's compelling enough to investigate. Even if, if you have 19 documents and one is real, that's fine. It is. That's really something. In fact, I'm sure you're aware of the uh, SOM manual, the uh, Recovering Extraterrestrials and Craft, the handbook, and, of course, uh, Bob Wood, who for 43 years was head of research and development for uh, McDonnell Douglas, uh, has done quite an investigation of that, and he found out that the type on that SOM manual matched government printing presses of the 1950s. So there is lots of evidence to suggest that there is some reality. And like you said, I think there are some phony. I think I think some of them were probably legitimate documents that had been retyped, okay? And that, of course, creates a problem because then allows uh, someone who's, uh, you know, looking at fonts and typefaces and everything else to say, oh, well, that couldn't be real. Back to your question, though, where do I stand on it? Well, some people believe that they're all legitimate and some people believe that they're all fraudulent and I stand with the people. Which people? (laughs) (laughs) See, I could be a politician too. I know that, but then how do you know if a politician is lying, he opens his mouth or she opens that's his right. mouth? Okay. And his lips are moving, that's right. That's you always know, true, uh, but no, they can I talk without the lips moving, you know, if they, Moonlight is a ventriloquist. Well, yeah. let me tell you something. You know, when I was re- researching for my lives of the Fourth Reich, and of course uh, a lot of the Nazis that came over here uh, were rolled into our space program. Werner von Braun, Dornberger, these guys, big decorated Nazis who then uh, became uh, leading in our space program and uh, it's it's amazing that a lot of that stuff was going on but what I began to find out in researching I kept coming across these names and it's the same names that were on the original Eisenhower briefing document as being the original members of MJ-12 now with the exception of about four military guys and those are interesting because one was the head of the White Sands Proving Grounds who would have had to have knowledge of what really happened at Roswell another was the base commander at Fort Bliss who was in charge of the Nazi rocket scientists so he probably had a good idea on what was really going on but with the exception of these military oh and the other guy was from Wright-Patterson which by all accounts the wreckage and bodies may have been taken to with the exception of these military military guys, all of whom had some connection to uh, Roswell, all the rest of them, Vannevar Bush, Brock, and all the rest of them, they all had ties to Wall Street and to major financial and industrial institutions, which is exactly what you would think would be uh, if indeed they found non-human technology. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. This is Leslie Kane and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. 
Jim Mars, conspiracy theorist extraordinaire. We're covering them all on this episode. Our co-host is Frank Warren. Frank, you have any further questions before I pick up on this? Well, it's not necessarily a question, but just an observation with the entire MJ-12 scenario. If you take the specifics out of it altogether, you know, first off, we know that the government investigated uh, UFOs for over 20 years. We know uh, that they covered things up. And if we just go by the mechanics of how our government works, it stands to reason, because we have examples of this, that they put groups of people together uh, and, and obviously the more valuable the, the subject matter the, the bigger the names that are going to be involved in it and if you get Roosevelt in the know and then you get all of the, the scientists that were uh, merged together during the Second World War it just stands to reason that there was such a group uh, involved in investigating UFOs now if you set aside the, the names that we're familiar with with the MJ-12 group we know that in the uh, summer, the beginning of 1948, uh, the biggest and brightest minds were sitting in uh, Los Alamos, and they were tasked to investigate the UFO phenomenon. And in fact, the, the documents that say so, or uh, we have them posted at the UFO Chronicles. So and, and these were some of the best and brightest minds in this country, uh, meaning in the world at the time. And the better uh, part of those uh, uh, fellas and scientists uh, became uh, were soon to become Nobel laureates uh, in their specific fields, and, and half of them were uh, were physicists. So th- that group, we can prove without a shadow of a doubt were tasked to investigate UFOs. So it just stands to reason, if not them or, or the, the other names, and I'm not going to argue the point if they were or were not. That's how we did business back then. That's how we do business today. I might add that, I mean, just use your common sense. Why would they take our best and brightest minds, and particularly people very, very knowledgeable in physics, and assign them to investigate UFOs if they truly knew and believed that there was no such thing or that they, you know, represent just some hoax or some test craft. No, it doesn't make exactly. any sense. Exactly. Yeah, precisely. No, I can tell you about the others. For example, uh, uh, Roscoe Hillencotter, he was the first CIA director, and he later joined NICAP and stated that UFOs were real, but the object of, quote, official secrecy and ridicule. And then you got Admiral uh, Sowers, the first director of CIA, and then you got the military guys, Hoyt Vandenberg, okay, who, uh, he's the guy who ordered the destruction of Project Sign, which is one of the first serious studies on UFOs. And uh, then you got General Robert Montague, base commander of Fort Bliss. I've already mentioned that he was in control of all the paperclip Nazi scientists. Uh, but his responsibilities included security at White Sands Proving Ground, so he had to know what was going on. Then you got General Nathan Twining, commander of the Air Material Command at Wright-Patterson, who he had to know what was going on because, uh, you know, they had to fly that stuff with uh, Matt's aircraft uh, up to Wright-Patterson. And he's the one in the 1945 memo that has now been made public and is totally legitimate says quote the phenomena UFOs reported as something real not visionary or fictitious and then you go to uh, the other members like Dr. Vannevar Bush who was very close to Avril Harriman of course and he had received research grants from the Rockefeller Foundation he's also on the board of directors of Merck Pharmaceuticals you got Dr. 
met with Bach, president of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. Uh, he was on the scientific advisory committee at Brookhaven, and uh, along with Dr. Edward Condon, who, of course, we know uh, because of his debunking uh, efforts. Uh, and then you got Dr. Uh, Donald Mensel, uh, who was a consistently debunked UFOs and yet was a covert assistant to the CIA and NSA. All right, now, Dr. Mensel, let's mention something here. Because somebody is a covert operative during World War II, and lots of people were, I mean, people in show business were covert operatives. Mm-hmm. Does that necessarily mean that he did something in civilian life? He was put up there to debunk UFOs, a put-up job? Well, you know, how do you prove something like that? You'd have to prove what was uh, his motivations were, but he was a lifelong debunker, and yet he was at the heart of the institutions and these people who obviously took UFOs quite seriously. Uh, well, and, and additionally, I believe Stan uh, connected him to the NSA post-war yeah. two. Yeah, and so once you're connected to intelligence like that, then you have to take with a large grain of salt anything they were doing or saying because you never knew whether that was coming from the heart or whether they were ordered to do that. Uh, you got Dr. Lord Bergner. He's a, a subordinate to Vannevar Bush, member of the Robinson panel. He was tied in all the time. And he was uh, president of Associated Universities, funded by Brookhaven National Lab and others. You got Dr. Gordon Gray, heir to the uh, Reynolds Tobacco Fortune, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, his chief consultant on the Psychological Strategy Board was none other than Henry Kissinger. So you see the caliber and you see the level that these guys were operating on. And again, they wouldn't have been wasting their time on UFOs if they truly knew that there was no such thing. This is, to me, smacks of cover-up. And, and, and to just to put the icing on the cake, the scientists that I had referred to earlier uh, were sitting in Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory, February 16, 1949, and some of those names included Dr. Bradbury, Holloway, Hoyt, Manley, Rains, and Dr. Edward Teller. Uh, mm-hmm. And Lincoln La Paz was also, uh, also attended that meeting. And uh, this was mandatory. They were tasked to look into the uh, aerial phenomena as this document is labeled. And by the way, it's labeled secret. Right. Let me quote to you from Lyndon Johnson uh, as a senator speaking to the Senate Democratic Caucus. He says, quote, Control of space means control of the world. From space, the masters of infinity would have the power to control the Earth's weather, to cause drought and flood, to change the tides, raise the level of the sea, to divert the Gulf Stream, change the climate to frigid. This is the ultimate position, the position of total control over the Earth that lies somewhere in outer space. And he said this in 1958. So it really makes you wonder, you know, again, what did they know and what were they working on? Control the weather, control the tides, control the tsunamis, control the hurricanes. Hello. And I would really like to know what he meant by the masters of infinity. Sounds like the <laughs> the secret government. It's, just, yes, it's, it's, a, it it's a new band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's why I think the new world order is actually just a resurgence of the old world order. <laughs> yeah, we're going back to the history of the UFO field, but let's kind of take it further up the line here. Okay, in connection with the recovery, alleged recovery of UFO technology, we have Roswell. 
We might have Aztec. You know, we had a discussion last week on Aztec, New Mexico, so maybe they recovered it there. Okay, having recovered this stuff in 1947-1948, do we have a damn clue as to what it's all about? Could we even reverse engineer any of this stuff? Well, of course. Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the uh, six-man land on the moon, has stated publicly that a lot of our modern scientific breakthroughs has been based on the back engineering of UFO technology. What else do you need? It's really amazing. And uh, the other story that amazes me is the story of the giant satellites that I stumbled across while uh, researching my book, Alien Agenda. And that was, and I think Lopez was uh, mixed up in this, they found, and this was like 1956, prior to the uh, launching of Sputnik, we uh, find that, in fact, here, the New York Times in October 1954 says uh, a second moon. Oh, it was Clyde Tombaugh, discoverer of the planet Pluto, said to be searching for moonlets. And they think that a moonlet could be nothing more than a meteor-sized rock of irregular form. They discovered and reported on at the time, briefly, that they found two giant satellites orbiting the Earth at 1,500-1,600 miles an hour, about 1,800 miles up, both of them near the equator. And Tomball came on. I, had, I found a clipping in an old Newsweek magazine of the time where they were asking amateur astronomers to be on the lookout and to look southward to see if they could get a look at these satellites. And that uh, and then other scientists were saying that we might use these satellites as stepping stones to the moon. In other words, launch a rocket, land on one satellite, and then launch off, land on the other, and then, you know, you're almost into outer space. And from there, you could go ahead and launch toward the moon without having to uh, use up tons of fuel trying to get through the Earth's atmosphere. And then, all of a sudden, they went away. <laughs> and nobody today talks about these giant satellites. Where did they come from, and where did they go? <laughs> Amazing story. Okay, but we're still looking here about the reverse engineering. Is that, you're saying, an evidentiary piece of information about some sort of Earth-developed satellite no. system based on alien technology or an alien No, no I, think, I think that was too early. Uh, we didn't have that technology. Uh, no, that was <laughs> the, the giant satellites uh, that kind of came and went. I think that's evidence of somebody out there other than us. No, I, I think it took some time to uh, back engineer, to understand, and to replicate uh, UFO technology. But uh, I think it's obvious some of the things we got from that, uh, night vision, fiber optics, computer miniaturization, fabrics. That yeah, but you're stand. basically repeating what... Philip Corso, Corso wrote yeah. the book. Yeah. And here's the thing. Here's the yeah, thing that Tom makes Corso me skeptical, Jim. Here's the thing yeah. that makes me skeptical about some of this, and maybe you could address it. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Jim Morris, conspiracy theorist extraordinaire. We're covering now the UFO mystery. We started earlier with 9-11 and the Kennedy assassination, which could really go to a lot of subjects, but we're focusing on UFOs just now. Okay, David Biedney and I were speculating about how our technology would look 50 or 100 years ago. So say in 1910, we sent back an iPhone, okay? (laughs) We sent back an iPhone to 1910, and we walk over to one of the people there. With colored pictures on it. Right, but the battery is going to fade out, you know, in a few hours. So maybe its battery is fully charged, but once the battery fades out, you know, yes, I suppose you could reverse engineer a way to recharge it, but where do you get your files? There's no Internet. It's well, just there what's you on go. there. How do you figure the darn thing out? That, and you've hit upon a very, very pertinent point in all of that. Let's use another analogy. Let's say you and I go in a time machine, and we go back to, oh, just the year 1900, okay? And uh, we know about modern cars, and we know how they work. Could we build a modern car? No, because we couldn't even build a spark plug. The, the infrastructure for making that kind of technology was not in place. That's what you're talking about, and it's absolutely true. And that's why it took a long time for us to utilize uh, UFO back-engineered technology because in lots of instances, the infrastructure for even making the basic components was not there. But, hey, we're moving right along. We're making headway because if you go back and really stop and think about it, say between the year, about the time of Christ, 2000, years ago, and then up to about a thousand years ago, the technology on Earth barely evolved. It just kind of moved forward. They had a little better steel, and they had, and then they had the wheel, and you know. And then from uh, next thousand years up to the modern era, it improved again, but somewhat slowly. And then from 1900 till about 1950, the general technology uh, in the world, the knowledge about that. It kind of doubled, okay, because of the rapid communication and the printing press and the telegraph and and typewriters. And so, you know, we were able to communicate and move a little faster. But from 1950 just to 1965, it doubled again. From 1965 to 1970, it doubled again. I mean, I hate to show my age, but when I was a kid, there was no television. And there was no air conditioning. It says here you were born in 1943. So Correct. in 1943, we didn't have television. It didn't involve every member of the family. It was right. still in testing, but we had television. It basically didn't come about in any degree in terms of mass production until the late 40s and early 50s. That's right. That's right. But uh, now, I might mention, though, that television was not unheard of. They'd been experimenting with television since the 1920s. In fact, during the Berlin Olympics of 1936, uh, hundreds of thousands of Germans would gather at uh, dozens of locations around Berlin, and they watched the uh, Berlin Olympics on television. Okay, so they had television. What I meant was is that we didn't have it. The public didn't have it. I don't think we got, uh, and my dad was, you know, he's just solid middle class. He had a little bit of money. His credit was good. And we didn't have a TV till uh, I don't know, 1953, 54, something like that. 
I think that's so pretty common. I remember did. watching Captain Video on television. Yeah. Science fiction. You remember that. The old Dumont yeah. Network. We're now reminiscing about things that even Frank Warren doesn't remember. Okay. The point <laughs> of here is that why do we have to assume fiber optics, night vision goggles, printed circuits were based on alien technology? Didn't we well, have the technology don't. ourselves? We had all those yeah. German scientists we got from, <laughs> but, yeah, from but the Nazi the laboratories. Why couldn't we do it? Why? Yeah, and, but here's the thing. By the end of World War II, it is now historic fact that the Nazis had flying saucers on the drawing board. The only argument is, did they really ever have one that was operable? And I think the evidence points to the fact that they did, but it's, that's still controversial. But they also had the world's first jet fighter, the me 2 62. By the way, towards the end of the war, they had television-guided missiles, okay? Luckily, they didn't have them in the production lines, but they were working on them, and they had night vision. They had the Vampire, which was a night vision scope. Uh, where did they get all this technology? Well, let me tell you guys, this is really fascinating. They got it because they had, you know, I've heard for years people said, well, they recovered a UFO somewhere. And oh, I've heard various stories. They got one in North Africa and they got one in Czechoslovakia, found one in Western Poland. But yet every time I tried to check those stories out, they never really went anywhere. There's no real hard evidence they ever got any real hardware. But obviously they had some sort of pipeline to high technology. And where'd they get it? I now suspect that they got it through what back in the 1900s and early 20s was called spiritualism, okay, where they would have uh, uh, seance type things. They sit around and they would go out with their minds, uh, in other words, psychic ability. Now, of course, there's still a lot of people going to roll their eyes and go, oh, psychic ability. Well, hey, the CIA worked with psychic ability, proved it in the laboratories. The Army picked it up, used it operationally in the 70s and 80s under the name remote viewing. And they're still using it. So you say they're still using it now. Oh, from yeah. all the discussions we've had before, remote viewing was something they experimented with some years back, but it didn't continue. You're saying it continues. Well, what they will tell you today is, is there is no longer a unit dedicated to remote viewing, and that is technically true. What they've done today is they've taken the people who have proven to be very good at remote viewing, and they have embedded them in a variety of agencies and organizations. In other words, the Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, as I understand it, when they go on an op, they carry at least one remote viewer with them. And, after all, what commander doesn't want at least somebody there who might be able to tell him what's over the next hill? So that's what's going on there. But here's what I want to impart to you guys. They picked up on a lot of this from the Nazis. And the Nazis had a psychic program that they were messing with under the codename MAGIC, M-A-J-I-K, which is the German uh, spelling. I will admit this is now, I will say this is theory. Most everything else I've said is fact. This is theory, but I theorize that when they brought the Nazi rocket scientists, mind control experts, chemical warfare, biological warfare experts over, they also brought their magic people who were into psychic experimentation. And that's where we picked up on 
some of the advanced knowledge and technology that they had. And I think it's really interesting that their program was Magic MAJIK and our first national security program in charge of UFOs, extraterrestrials, advanced technologies was Magic 12, M-A-G-I-C, the anglicized version of Magic. Not a coincidence. Yeah, what a coincidence. <laughs> but I'm just a conspiracy theorist, so hey, don't believe me, okay? In fact, see, that's where I'm different from the politicians and the TV evangelists. They all say, hey, trust me, believe me, I've got it, here it is, listen to me, follow what I say. You know, I don't say that. I say, listen to me, go out, check it out for yourself, and see if I'm not telling you the truth. And at that point, then you don't have to worry about whether you believe me or not. You'll know it for yourself. Well, let's look at that. We only have a few minutes left, so maybe look at proving any of this stuff. So how do we get a handle on it? You know, we have all this tantalizing information and the absolute proof that you can go forth with and just go on TV or major newspapers and say, here it is, the smoking gun. Where's our smoking gun? It's hmm. a good question. I've actually held in my hand pieces of very light and odd-looking metal that purported to come from the Roswell crash. Uh, I've seen photographs that are actually a lot better than just blobs of light in the night sky, and I'm sure you guys have too. So there's plenty of photographic evidence. In fact, if you think about it, when I started being interested in UFOs in the 50s, 60s, the big counter-argument was is that they were just hallucinations or perhaps a mass psychosis. And, you know, as a young reporter, I thought, whoa, a heretofore undiagnosed, contagious mass psychosis. What a story. But we don't hear anything about that anymore, do we? And we don't hear the explanation of hallucinations anymore. And why is that? Because of the advent of the camcorder and the uh, cell phones now that take pictures. All you got to do is go on the Internet and then type in UFOs, and you're going to find more stuff than you have time to look at. Uh, there's hardly a day goes by somebody somewhere in the world doesn't get a fairly decent photograph of the UFO. And, of course, folks, you can't take a photograph of a psychosis or a hallucination. So there's something real. It's there. And this is why we are slowly but surely breaking out of the moratorium on thinking about UFOs because now they really can't deny that there's something there. So now they're simply saying, well, it's experimental test craft and uh, you just don't understand this and you don't need to be looking at this silly subject, blah, blah, blah. And yet it's very real. In fact, I will say this to everyone listening. If you're trying to figure out what's going on in the world and you dismiss the whole issue of UFOs, then you're never going to know what's really going on in the world because you just tossed out a big piece of the puzzle. Well, and another point, too, Jim, you have to go back to uh, at least a common agreement. Remember that the powers that be have never said that UFOs don't exist. In fact, the very term UFO is an Air Force term born in 1952. Uh, Even at the end of Blue Book, they didn't say UFOs didn't exist. They said they're not a threat to national security, which would lead one to believe that they know more than what they're saying. It's also just common sense because think about it let's just go back to 1947 with Roswell and the big first big flap of everybody seeing flying saucers and all like that Uh, if their intention 
was to invade the earth and blow up our cities as in Independence Day, then why didn't they do it then? Because then the only thing we had to oppose them was propeller-driven aircraft and 50-caliber machine guns. Uh, so what? We're expected to think that they're going to wait, you know, 60, 70 years to where we have space platforms and and laser weaponry and all kinds of stuff? No. I think it's obvious that they are not a direct threat to us. So when the Air Force says, well, they're no threat to national security, that's true, but that's not saying, as you so well pointed out, that they don't exist. And personally, and to go back to Gene's question, where is the smoking gun? Um, I don't think the, the smoking gun isn't any one thing. It is the exactly. preponderance of evidence from the very beginning of what we deem modern-day ufology, which, which most of us agree is 1947, but perhaps yeah. it's 1942. Maybe Roosevelt was in the know. Uh, which just puts or 1897, uh, or even further. I, that's correct. Sure. Yeah, when I was doing a video on the Aurora spaceship crash, I was at the Wise County Courthouse, and Aurora is in Wise County. And a young guy and his uh, young boy came up to me and said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, we're just doing this documentary on this the old spaceship crash in Aurora." He said, "Oh, I know all about that. My grandfather was there and told me all about it." So I said, "Whoa, sit down here." Had him sign a <laughs> release and turn the camera on him. And, of course, his his story pretty much coincided. He said his dad and some friends were working. They heard this big explosion. The ground shook. They all went in town to see what was going on. He said there's pieces of metal lying all over the place. But he told me a tidbit of information that I had never heard before. He said his grandfather told him that within hours, representatives of every law enforcement agency in the, in the north part of Texas was showing up. And I said, well, what did they do? He said, well, you know, about half of them were going around saying, okay, folks, go on home, you know, it's all over, everything, nothing to see here. He said the rest of them were picking up all of this metal material and, and putting it in wagons and carting it off. Hey, the very first crash retrieval. <laughs> and that goes back to my 1942 memo from George Marshall where he said he was going to check War Department files for unconventional aircraft dating back to 1897. I think as far back as 1897, they knew something was going on, something was up there in the air, but they really didn't know what it was. And, you know, nobody in an authority position will stand up and say, hey, folks, there's something happening, but I don't know what it is and I can't do anything about it. So they just keep it quiet. You know, through, through through our research back with the Battle of L.A., the uh, uh, I was the one to introduce the clear image of the uh, uh, 1942 L.A. Times photograph into oh, the Internet. Where, where you reversed it and it shows a little saucer craft in the middle? Yeah, that was great. Well, I, yeah, that was my own inspection of, the, of that. Yes. But, but pri- prior to me introducing that image, uh, the, the, the best thing that you could find was an old, uh, the old black and white film from it. But I, I, I located the negative. And, and by the way, there are more pictures. Uh, I'll tell oh, you what, wow. that's almost another show, folks. We're just yeah, right out of time. Yeah, another show. I'd love to hear about that. I'm going to have to be a listener on that one. Well, you have to be a listener. Listen to the Paracast, and also we'll have you come back again because we only covered the tip of the iceberg. Okay, Jim, in the last two or three minutes here, Please tell our listeners where they can learn more about the things that you do. Okay, well, they can visit my website, jimmars.com. That's Mars with two R's, like the planet, but with an extra R. Uh, but I apologize in advance because I'm in the middle of kind of revamping and upgrading and 
changing the website around, so if something seems a little squirrely, uh, just have patience. I'd appreciate it. Or you can get any of my books at any bookstore, and if they don't have it on the shelf, you can just say, I want to order this book by Jim Mars, or just tell them Jim Mars, and they can call it up on their computer, and you can find out all of my work. If you are just starting out, or if you know people who are just starting out wondering what's going on with the conspiracies and the mysteries, you might mention my 2009 book, Above Top Secret, which uh, deals with about 20 of the modern conspiracies and mysteries. Uh, it includes the Kennedy assassination 9-11, but it also includes what hung over the gate at O'Hare Airport and what they saw at Stephenville and gets into a lot of the UFO issues uh, as well as many others. And uh, all you have to do is just uh, go to Amazon, go to any bookstore, and you can get them. What do you have coming out in the near future, future books, future titles that we might want to find out about? Well, sometime later this spring, I think maybe into June, I've got a new book coming out from HarperCollins called The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, How the New World Order, Man-Made Diseases, and uh, Zombie Banks are Destroying America. And so if you have any one, if you're really wondering, you read the headlines and you go, what in the world's going on? Read that book. It'll put it together for you. We will definitely look forward to the book, look forward to more of the work that you're doing. By the way, your publicity guy, I guess from your publisher, told us there's also a fiction book that you've done. Oh, thank you. That's true. Uh, just uh, towards the end of last year, finally uh, tried my hand at uh, fiction. Actually, I call it a work of faction. It's uh, fact-based fiction. And it's really... I think it's a real good story about a secret society of women who band together during World War II in Europe and uh, try to uh, fight the Nazis. And uh, they end up in a race with the Nazis to see who's going to recover the greatest treasure trove in history, Solomon's treasure, which uh, by all accounts seems to be have been hidden in the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains in southern France. And if you want to know how did Solomon's treasure get to southern France, well, then read The Sisterhood of the Rose, and you'll learn all of the history. Jim Mars, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thank you, guys. It was a big treat, Jim. Good talking with you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.